0: Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another Mind Matters. Today, we're going to be talking about a book by T.C. Lethbridge called The Power of the Pendulum. This is the book. It's a rather slim volume, 150 or so pages, maybe a little less. Uh, T.C. Lethbridge was a Cambridge um, kind of a archaeologist, uh, explorer, um, he served in uh, Cambridge's University Museum of Archaeology and Ethnology for a number of decades. Uh, so he was an academic. He one of his responsibilities was to keep charge of certain objects, um, but he was also something of a naturalist. He had a very intimate um, relationship to his environment and a pretty strong curiosity about nature. Uh, so later on in his life, he, he kind of veered off into subjects, uh, related to parapsychology and questions of the mind and, and psychic ability and wrote a number of books in addition to his more academic studies that explored those ideas. Um, I had heard of, uh, using the pendulum as a way of uh acquiring a kind of subconscious knowledge of of where things were kind of like um a psychic geiger counter of sorts i i never really uh gave it much thought or or gave too much credence to the idea i guess because um i hadn't read too much on it um but this book the power of the pendulum really makes the case for the possibility of there being something to it. And um, what really kind of grabbed me uh, right off was the nature of his writing and the introduction to the book, The Power of the Pendulum, by Colin Wilson. Um, Colin Wilson was a prolific uh, British author. Uh, he would written The Outsider, uh, The Occult, And a number of um, other nonfiction and fiction novels that were uh, well regarded. Yeah,
1: like the Mind Parasites was one of his novels. I was just getting to that,
0: Harrison. I would not have left out the Mind Parasites. Uh, Yeah, Harrison just brought up this other novel that um, that is a a little favorite of mine uh, called The Mind Parasites where uh, Wilson posits the idea that um, there is, uh, well, it's really a, a story. He doesn't present it as, as a nonfiction study. But the idea is that um, th- that the, the world has become kind of attacked by this parasitic, nonphysical mind virus uh, that, um, that affects the thinking of, of the world and creates all of this kind of global... Uh, Destruction and, and catastrophe by design. So anyway, Wilson uh, was filled with all kinds of uh, interesting ideas that he seemed to pull out of the infor- information field. And, um, and he writes a glowing introduction to The Power of the Pendulum um, because uh, Wilson was also very much interested in, in uh, the kind of nuts and bolts workings of um, parapsychology and mysticism and uh, And the people who were proponents of ideas that might otherwise be considered fringe uh, but that were so powerful that they made it into uh, some mainstream awareness so um uh, like I said, he writes this glowing in- introduction to uh power of the pendulum uh, that kind of hooked me in right away, and like one of the ideas that um that drew me in as well as we started as I started to read this book was how Lethbridge um first of all he's got a great sense of humor. Uh he writes everything in a kind of a, a light manner. But um the book was written around nineteen seventy uh published in seventy one. It was the last of all of his books. It was edited by his wife and uh and their cousins. And um it was uh it was, I think, his, um, his kind of uh, um, encapsulation of a lot of the ideas that he felt were the most pertinent to his uh, career as a, as a kind of a, a student of psychic ability and, um, and parapsychology. And uh, what's fascinating to me, one of the things, is that... Um, And we'll get into the whole idea of what the pendulum is and and how we connect to uh, certain natural laws and and things that exist in in our environment via this psychic use of the pendulum. But what was really fascinating was the number of times, uh, and really early on too, that he he, uh, goes on the attack on neo-Darwinism. And, and the kind of uh, classic ideas of evolution that we were all brought up with. And I was thinking, you know, by that time, yes, you had some studies in science that, that pointed to the, the idea that neo-Darwinism is BS, um, but he was able to, uh, almost 50 years ago and, and earlier, come out and say that neo-Darwinism is bunk. And... Um, and, and the reasons why. And so I feel like it's all of a piece. It's like, it's like you have to kind of understand in a way that materialism has, through neo-Darwinism and through a lot of other ideas, limited our scope of thinking about what reality is and what our relationship to the environment is. And, and, and that there is a kind of a life of the mind or a super, super conscious, separate from the subconscious, he makes this distinction in the book, that, um, that we can tap into uh, via tools uh, like the pendulum, uh, the dowsing rod, and just sheer observation of, of, those, uh, of those things. Um, so he encouraged a lot of observation. He encouraged a lot of kind of uh, experimentation and, um, and says, you know, basically if you're a materialist, uh, hardcore, and you don't have any questions that come naturally to you about, Where, you know, what we are as humans and what we're capable of uh, outside of our five senses. Then, then this stuff isn't for you. Right. He's
2: He was really just the, you get an idea of who he was in the in the introduction that Colin Wilson writes, and then also throughout the book and some other of his writings where he talks a little bit about his upbringing. Um, and he sounds just like an extremely adventurous, you know, free-thinking, well-rounded person who, you know, he spent his, like in his younger years, he said that he got a skill for observation from, Uh, being raised around a lot of hunters. And so when... Out, he was always having to pay attention to everything in his surroundings, everything that would signal, you know, a, a wounded animal and which direction the animal had went, and how to track that animal. And then also, uh, he he had politicians in his family, and so they trained him to spot people's reactions to things that were being said without uh, them noticing that he was gathering information on how they were reacting to, you know, various, you know, hot topic issues or you know, just just different things. That that came up in conversation, and then Colin Wilson says that you know he was kind of a loner. Uh, he you know he got married and he but you know he before he was married and you know his mentality was really kind of he was a very independent person. His two uh, loves of his life, you know, up until you know his research into. The parapsychology and, you know, ghosts and ghouls um, were archaeology and the sea. So he wrote, you know, a book on, you know, coasts and coastmen and different things about, you know, just the natural life of just people down to earth. And, you know, he... Uh, he was like you said he worked at uh at cambridge but he kind of had a love hate ambiguous relationship with them because you know clearly he was a man of uh, quite a bit of intellect if if not just you know just through being independent you know just thinking and you know following things wherever they led um and not being you know biased in terms of what he would or would not consider you know he was a uh, but then he you know he said that you know cambridge was kind of uh, suffocating and then it you know it was it was just not it was like he loved it you know he loved cambridge and he loved the everything that had to do with it but at the same time he just also had that free spirit that finally when he was able to leave he was able to devote himself into the study of ghosts and ghouls and you know ancient religions and just basically able to say all sorts of things that he never would have been able to say in a you know a quote unquote respectable academic setting, and in this book you really get an idea of, of what his world philosophy is you know he he really pairs it down into what one hundred and sixteen pages or something you get an idea of of how he views you know our point in time in history you know the major dilemma between materialistic random Randomness, you know, the point of view that everything comes about randomly versus the idea that everything is created, you know, and and how that was such a dilemma, right, for mankind, and you know, and his attempt to grapple with that dilemma led to experiments in in this, you know, higher dimensional parapsychological area so that he could ascertain for himself using those methods that are taught and tried by you know materialistic whatever science but then applying that to so-called religious studies and you know it's it's a little you know some of it is is a little bit out there, you know, I don't know, I mean, because I don't, the, some of his um, conclusions and that he he draws from, you know, this pendulum swinging, you know, I'm like, you have to have a very gifted imagination to draw the conclusions about different higher dimensions because of the length of a pendulum string, and how many times it rotates, and how many times it spins. You know, I'm not a trained scientist, but it seems to me that, you know, when you start saying that the higher dimensions are involved, it's, it's, uh, it's very inspired in, in some sense, and it, it lends credence to just how open a mind he had to um, to things that are just, that are para, you know, or, not supernatural, but para-natural, I guess.
1: Mm-hmm. Like, I guess you could call it a, a vast inferential leap that, uh, yeah. many vast inferential leaps that he makes. Yeah. Um, but oddly enough, well, they kind of make sense in a system like that he provides or kind of creates for himself or discovers through his own use of the pendulum, but maybe before we get into some of his uh, more out there ideas, just a little bit on the pendulum itself, um, I was—it's kind of like dowsing, right? Because well, a pendulum—you've got a—it's like a, a plumb bob, or you know, it's basically a, a heavy object on the end of a string, and it rocks back and forth. Like you said, it can make spirals. It can go back and forth, you know, just like a pendulum, like a like a in a, a grandfather clock or whatever. Um, and it can be used to find things like dowsing rods. You have dowsers that look for sources of water to dig wells, for instance, and the dowsers are still used for that purpose. It reminds me of, a, of an anecdote I heard, um, not relating to pendulums or dowsing, but uh, you'll see how it kind of fits in. It was about a, um, like a famous um, quantum physicist, I believe, somewhere in Europe. And a journalist had, I believe it was a journalist, Sorry, I don't remember the details of the story, absolutely, because it just came to my mind. But uh, had gotten invited to go out to his farm, basically. And so they go out to the farm, and the journalist notices a, like, um, a horseshoe, like, above the door. And says, oh, you know, that's pretty superstitious. Like, do you really believe that? And then the physicist said, oh, it's one of those things that works whether you believe in it or not. Right? (laughs) And that seems to be the approach that a lot of people take to dowsing. Like, um, you know, farmers or people who have or who, who live out in the country and need a well built, they'll call a the dowser to do it because even if they don't believe in it, it seems to work. And um, and that's why they're, you know, that's why dowsers are still, um, you know, sought after because it seems to work. Like, they seem to be able to find water. And so it seems similar to the pendulum. Like, because me too, like, I'd, I'd, I'd never really known anything about pendulums until several years ago. But then I, I and I've only had like, well, I've had maybe two experiences with the pendulum. And um, one came out just as a result of kind of whimsy. So we were doing some house renovations in the basement and um, installing some walls. And so we had to like nail down these two by fours to the concrete, you know, foundation essentially, the, the the basement floor. And we were using this drill to 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 drill in the you know the screws to hold down these boards. But the, the concrete was, first of all, it was kind of spotty. Like some parts were a lot harder to drill through than others. And wherever we'd look for a spot to drill through, we'd hit these hard bits and couldn't drill through them. Like, you know, we'd be standing there for like minutes and get like a quarter of an inch down. Mm-hmm. And so we're just like, well, what are we going to do? This is crazy. Like, this is the only drill we have. So I just thought, well, you know, it can't hurt. So I got out the, the plumb bob. Um, that we were using for, you know, just to to measure the, um, you know, to get some lines straight when we were putting the the boards up. And so I just kind of told myself, okay, well, I'm going to start it spinning. So, okay, or start it swaying back and forth. And then I want, so when I get to a spot where I want to, where it will drill, um, I'm just, I want it to stop. So I I go and I'm just going along the the two by four and it's going voop, voop, voop. And then I get to a spot and no, okay, it stops so we drill it goes in and we do that like 10 times and it worked each time whereas before we we were having zero luck like we couldn't drill any of these holes so i was like oh well that that was interesting you know a fun coincidence was it actually working well well it worked you know whether you believe it or not um whether there was actually something paranormal going on you know that's another question but the the one of the interesting things i found about that was that it was uh it was like a need-based thing. Like there was no other way we were going to find out where where these were, unless we were going to drill hundreds of holes to try to find which one would work, and that was just like that wasn't going to happen. So it's like there was there was no way to test for it. So we used this weird like you know uh, divinatory method to to try to find it out, and it ended up working another time. Uh, but then again, you know, another time I was looking for a missing object and just got nowhere. Didn't find it. Mm-hmm. Right? Someone else found found it. Totally not in the place where, where the pendulum was telling me it might be. So, um, and like Colin Wilson says in his introduction, it's like uh, Colin Wilson himself has, didn't have any luck with the pendulum. Like, it didn't seem to work for him. Mm-hmm. Um, but Tom Lethbridge seemed to have a knack for it. And it seems like, <clears throat> like that's the thing. Like, some things work better for some people than others. And, um, you know, in a lot of these parapsychological phenomena like whether it's um... you know the like remote viewing some people are better than others any any different like micro field that you find in wider parapsychology you find people who are better at it than others so the thing like the question i have about um, um, well again so i'll leave like his system and some of his conclusions to the side for a second maybe you guys can pick on that pick up on that after after i finish just this one point is that he comes up with all of these conclusions about, about um, like, everything from, from these experiments he's doing with, with the pendulum. And that, you know, it makes me wonder, first of all, whether they're repeatable by other people. Um, and I'm not sure if anyone has tried to, like, verify whether they can get the same results that he has. And, the, like, the reason that's a question for me is that I wonder if the results that he got... And leaving like even accept, even um even assuming or just accepting for the time being that they're true in some sense that the results that he got might be not necessarily objectively true in the sense that any anyone um anyone with a talent for the pendulum if you can call it that would find the same results or if they were like a system that was specific to him and his mind because I was reminded of, I, I think it was in the first sight book by Carpenter. I can't remember for sure though. But where he was describing how some of the some of the psychics that he was um, like whose work he was quoting seemed to have very specific like routines and um, conditions under which things would work. So they, they each had kind of like their own style or personality of of the overall system in which their their phenomena would. You know, evoke, come out, come about. <clears throat> so I'm wondering if this, if the, if this, if the system of results that Lethbridge got were more of like, like part of a st- the structure of his own mind. It's like his that on some like superconscious level, like he might say mm-hmm. that that it like it really did all this categorization and and um and like systematization, so that he was like discovering these things, but that were put in uh like kind of like his own particular language. Mm-hmm.
0: So I would say there are a few different answers to that. Um, he, he had conducted these experiments mostly on his own, but he also did them with his wife, he writes. And uh, there's one experiment that he engaged in with, um, I think, uh, a friend as well as his wife, where they were dowsing for, uh, and maybe perhaps using the pendulum to... Determined certain, um, elements of a very large stone. And, um, there was, they were doing this in coordination and yes, they were using dowsing rods and there was something in a, in the response to like his, his friends using the dowsing rod that was a reaction to Lethbridge's own detection of, of this element. Uh, I think it is. And, and this story might've been in, in one of the other, uh, readings, uh, there's some comp- some good compilations of Lethbridge's work in other places, uh, so that might not be in this particular book, but um, so that's part of the answer. There there was at least among Lethbridge and his wife and and people and intimates that he that he shared this research with, a consistency, um, and there was certainly he claims a consistency within his own research that that he claims again and again was repeatable um and the idea basically just to just to uh add a little bit to your description of how this works is that uh you basically have this this um this line at the end of a a stick that um that is measured in a certain number of inches uh called a rate so like you know the rate of silver as an element, if you were looking for it, uh, buried underground would be, I think, 22 inches, maybe something else. But the whirl or the um, the kind of um, uh, pendulum swinging in a certain way would occur a certain number of times. So you'd have the, the length and the whirl. That would happen consistently with certain elements. And he would also, so it wasn't just metals or elements or uh, it would also be, um, you know, he would have assigned a certain rate or length of string to find a certain type of wood, uh, a certain herb. Um, He could also uh, try and determine by an emanation that came off of an object that, uh, that someone might have used their particular emotional point of view. So he ascribed to the idea of manna, he called it, or emanations that leave a kind of vibratory imprint. And uh, he talks a lot about vibrations. Um, it's through vibrations or a certain vibrational rate that uh, the pendulum is, he believes, able to uh, determine um, what something is to a certain degree. Um, and he thinks that this was a kind of an ancient technology that was known to people you know, thousands of years ago, but but somehow got lost uh, over millennia or however long. Uh, just a bit about history. He got the idea to use the pendulum by a, a French brigadier, a soldier who was uh, poring over maps and trying to determine where mines were over the sea. So he, he got inspired by, the, by this idea because this this French brigadier who wrote about detecting dangerous mines for shipping vessels that might blow up their vessels and had some success in determining where these mines might be, uh, it made an impact on them. So why not, you know, if, if, if this guy was using such a, a kind of a low end technology for such an important, um, uh, aim, uh, he might as well try it himself. So I thought that was a, an interesting thing.
1: Well, just on that, just a, another little anecdote based, or related to that, um, I think it was in this book I was reading recently, American Cosmic, by uh, um, an American religious studies um, professor. And she was talking about um, how in the military, even today, there are, like, in every unit... Now, I, I don't know, because I haven't spoken to guys in the military, but this is what she was basically saying, that in the units, at least she, that she'd talked with members of, that each of these units had a, a guy, like, in the mine... The mind detecting, like, part of the of the of the team that was like kind of had a sixth a sixth sense about finding mines and avoiding mines, and so the like each kind of uh, you know military grouping would just implicitly trust this guy because he had a record of just knowing where mines were, and of course like um, this was. Perhaps in reference to like the you know the remote viewing tests that the military was doing back in like the you know seventies and eighties, but um, but just even like aside from that actual like the actual official interest in parapsychology in the military, that it was purely a practical measure. That um, when you're in an environment where it's life or death, it's like again you don't care whether you believe in the stuff or not. You just use what works. And it seems like there are individuals. Who are just better at guessing where minds are, and so you naturally just say, "Okay, well, you're in charge now." You know, <laughs> the guy's probably thinking, "Oh, geez," but there, there, are, there are individuals like that, right? And so it's like same thing in this in the example that you just gave about the brigadier. It's like it, it, that's a that's a situation where you you you're you have a deficit in knowledge, mm-hmm. right? You don't know where these minds are, but it's a, a life and death situation so you're going to try whatever you can to 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 get the answer and it just so happens that some of these methods actually work you know whether you believe in them or not and uh and so well that also that also relates back to the idea you know with you know me and my pendulum is that and this relates back to uh like first sight and carpenter about there being like a there being a need for the information like um I'd guess, I don't know if there have been any any studies like this in the, you know, in all the parapsychological research, but I'd guess, based on reading Carpenter's work, that you'll probably find better results when the information isn't immediately knowable by other means. It's like when it can only be verified kind of after the fact. It's like when you're doing a, like when you're doing a test, you know, you just, you know, you put three items under cups and you move them around and then you're kind of you know using your pendulum to find which one is which well subconsciously like your your sub or superconscious is going to be saying well you know we could tell you the answer but all you have to do is pick up the cup to find out it's like you don't need any kind of special skill in order to find it out mm-hmm. it's like if if there if there are three three sites located like you know in different countries and you have only a limited amount of money and you need to find certain things it's like in that case it's like, it's not easy to check each one you're, or, or to check, you know, it's not easy to like conduct a random search of like the entire like Australian, you know, continent to find out where one particular object is. Well, you're going to need something to help you find it. In that case, the only thing you could do is, is trust or, you know, or trust or experiment with some kind of, you know, alternative technique, like, you know, like dousing on a map or something. So I think th- I think there, there might be a link there between like the, the lack of information and the, well, the, the lack of ready like availability of the information and that kind of um, like affirming a subconscious recognition of that, that okay, we, we have no way of actually, uh, we have no way, no easy way of finding this information or immediately verifying it, therefore there's like an extra need to use the, like the non-sensory means of finding that information. And uh, like giving a signal as to where it is,
2: and you could say that uh, Lethbridge's need for discerning all of this information, you know, using the pendulum, was based on that dilemma, that fundamental dilemma. He saw that kind of crisis of, of faith in you know traditional religious structures, the traditional academic community, and you know traditional just you know modern society, and especially you know Darwinism. He throughout the book he he's peppered all of those little anecdotes of his, you know, issues with all of these things, and you get the impression that that's the driving force, that's the fundamental need that would kind of, that could stand as a barrier between just the average drill replicating um, the kind of information that he has. That could be a possible barrier, but I think, you know, just to answer your question about whether or not it's, you can replicate this data, it's like that, you know, that's just um just a matter of just giving it a shot you know reading down like his methods and just do it trying to replicate them the best that you can and then you know understanding that you know the a lot of us probably don't have, you know, just intrinsic dowsing kind of, you know, psychic abilities, mm-hmm. but that as we've seen from, you know, our reading on First Sight, the shows that we've done on First Sight and Parapsychology, that it's basically, it seems like it's a fairly universal phenomenon that, you know, even if we're not consciously able to access it, that under certain conditions, it's more readily accessible than others. And one of the big ones that you pointed out is, is needing the information that you're seeking. And not being able to get it through through other means, and so that 's where I think the real the drive and the quest that Lethbridge had is was really the um, was the driving force that really opened up you know this this entire world to him that like i like you said before, you know it seems very inspired because, like you said, there's many inferential leaps from the spinning of a of a pendulum to the uh the knowledge of you know how many levels there are to reality, which we haven't gotten we haven't gotten to that point yet, but I think that just at the very foundation I can see where he's where he's coming from because if you were able to replicate the the findings that you know every whenever you were Looking for silver, or you're thinking about anger, or you're thinking about love, or you're thinking about women, or gold, or any of these other things, and you consistently get the same uh, mechanical response from the dowsing rod, then you have to think that there is something objective out there somewhere, right. some sort of a coordinate system that responds to that, and that you are getting, you're picking up on it through some sort of, you know, psychic electromagnetic type of energy and that it's coming down and it's interacting with physical reality. And, you know, and then once you start thinking about things that way, then, you know, then it's like you've opened up a whole new world of, of potential, like, you know, ways of investigating the cosmic mind essentially. So we're going to have to set up a series of tests
1: and, and, and do another show to show our results. But cause, cause uh, I think we'd have to take into account at least a couple things. One would be to conduct these tests with people well first, we might have us like a sample of people right, and set up some kind of simple test to see who might be the most talented with the pendulum, see if there's anyone with a kind of natural ability, this sort of thing, and then hopefully that person has no prior knowledge of lethbridge's specific system or results, but with the only with the um, with the information and with the attempt to show to show, uh, to confirm whether there are these consistencies, right? So like whether you can get consistently, um, a certain, um, like length of string and, and, uh, you know, number of circles for like silver compared to gold or something. And then see if we can get that, see if you can get consistent results that are repeatable over time. And then only after that, see if those numbers are the same as Lethbridge's Mm -hmm. numbers, because at least hypothetically, I think it's it's possible to get consistent results, but that are different results. That's why I'm. That's why I think that the test should be done to see whether, like Lethbridge's specific results are universal, mm-hmm. or whether that was a product of his mind. Because you could you could get someone. Um, well, again, like hypothetically, if uh, if you have a really good douser, you might be able to find someone who gets just as consistent results, but that has completely different like signatures for each metal, for instance. So Mm -hmm. what if someone else consistently gets like 20 inches for silver as opposed to 22 or whatever Mm -hmm. it was and, and they have their own like unique system. Like, so the question would be whether it's, whether those numbers are inherent in the things in themselves, or if those numbers are a kind of code that are, um, only signifying or like hinting at an objective quality of the, of the thing in itself. Like just like any other language, it's like is that the is twenty two inches like the actual essence of the thing in itself, or is it just um, like uh, a letter or a symbol for for that essence for that thing in itself? He
0: he actually makes reference to us as as decoders Mm -hmm. that um, you know this table that we have the cameras and our paperwork and our books and our water and our cigarettes on is is not exactly uh, as we would interpret it to be, uh, but that exists on another level of reality and that we're decoding it based on a limited-based, um, uh, you know, sensorium of criteria, if that makes any sense.
2: Right, he says that the brain is the sensor for Earth-level reality. That's how he describes, like, the brain consciousness, is the brain is a sensor.
0: It's a, it's a sensor, and he's also careful to... I think in one place, make the distinction between the brain and the mind, mm-hmm. which which is what I really appreciate uh, about his work too. Um, yeah,
1: let me just interrupt there. I'll give his definitions. Like right at the beginning, he gives his, his terminology to, to distinguish these things. So he says he uses these words, so he defines them. Body, he just refers to, means body. But by soul, he's referring to individual consciousness. And then by spirit, he's referring to mind, possibly much more extensive Mm-hmm. And then when he's talking about brain, he says it's the sensor for Earth-level thinking. So those are the distinctions he makes there.
0: Yeah. And getting back to that point you were making a little earlier, Harrison, where I mean, about this consistency, uh, this kind of across-the-board um, you know, data points that we can look at as an objective uh, reality of, of, of how the pendulum re- reacts and responds to certain things. Um, by way of analogy, he says that uh, when he's gotten a, a lot of letters from readers, he mentions, and uh, one of the things that he's read a lot about and has, and has been written to uh, on the subject of were people having out-of-body experiences, people who have, um, because they've been in a car accident or, or, or were sickly um, and might have been close to death, or even... Uh, just in bed, um, asleep, and have, and have, for whatever reason, their consciousness left their physicality. There, across the board, there always seems to be this this vantage or viewpoint of the people um, of a, a certain number of, of feet in the air uh, and just off to the side, which which he considers to be consistent with the number of whirls, and um, and and the certain rate or distance that you would computate using a, a pendulum, if such a thing were measurable, um, to indicate that that we're kind of constructed this in a similar way. Uh, I don't know how clear that is, but he the way he describes it, it's quite clear. Corey's got a look on his face, folks. He, he's, he's like he's he's. Go ahead, Corey. Tell me. Okay, clarify. so
2: all right. So what I was thinking when you're discussing the worlds and the activity of the pendulum, I was thinking about the show we did on the that book, uh, Consciousness, Anatomy of the Soul, where they talk about attractors. And in the mathematics the attractors are different Ways that these systems can behave, so you have chaotic attractors, and you have they they all behave differently, so you know in like the very simplest system is just like a what i don't think it would the pendulum would even move, but um no, in like no, as complicated yeah, no, it would move back it, and forth. it would just move yeah. back and forth correct, and so then the like the spinning around that's a next level uh attractor, and in that book they discussed about the fact that they found that as consciousness rises there's different. Um, attractor levels. I can't remember. I can't think of the proper way. Do you Do you remember how they something discussed that? In. There's like linear attractors. There's chaotic attractors, and you know, so like yeah, the solar system they, behaves in in one attractor type way, yeah, and
1: and they've each got like a I can't remember the phrase, but like a dimensional number. Or a dimen- yeah. So, so you can calculate the number of dimensions needed in order to um, like mathematically represent that system. Mm-hmm. So like. You know, like a very simple, like I think it's the point attractor is like one dimension, and then you've got the like the I don't know simple attractor or something It's two dimensions, and then then when they get up to three plus dimensions, then uh, at some point, the the more dimensions you have, that's when it becomes chaotic. It's like it, uh, um, and they and they're quantum like that, like they jump from one to the other. Mm-hmm. It's like there's no, um, well, uh, I'm I'll stop there because I. I I'd just be talking nonsense because I don't know math.
2: Well, yeah, I don't, I don't know math either. But I remember in the book they discussed the fact that that they thought that consciousness kind of came out of a mathematical type dimension, right? And whatever is, you know, whatever causes the pendulum to act in the way it does. It's, it acts in a way that's similar to these different attractors. You know, that there's, when, when the world is one, and then just, you know, back and forth is another one. And so I was just, it just sparked my, in my curiosity to wonder if there's any way that you can, you know, look at the two phenomena and see if there, you know, is there, at, at root, something similar going on between the consciousness and the you know anatomy of the soul and the different uh, consciousness attractors and the different kinds of a behavior of the dowsing rod or the pendulum.
0: Oh, well, the the one part that um, that's described in the book that seems to approach that idea. Uh, you know, he again he talks about uh, the subconscious or the kind of lower uh, motivations of the human being uh, versus the uh, superconscious uh, or higher. Um, higher dimensional part of the self that is said to exist I mean this is this is part of the conclusion that he's come to after so many years of, of thinking about and experimenting with with the pendulum that there is a higher dimensional self um, that that exists on worlds if you were thinking about it in terms of the the swing of the pendulum that uh, that think on another level um, and he actually, I don't think that answers your question at all, Corey. But
2: no, it doesn't, <laughs> it's not even close. But but I, but I like me, where you're going continue. with it. <laughs>
0: uh, so something else that he seems to incorporate, um, in in his study is the idea that, um, that there is memory and consciousness and uh, awareness that exists not only you know when we sleep or, or when we've left our bodies. Um, it, but uh, after death, mm-hmm. so um, he also attributes certain uh places in in the in the distance of a, of a physical body to where the consciousness would reside if they were, for instance, if they had left their bodies completely and had and g- gone into an afterlife and um he He incorporates this so seamlessly into. Uh, how he describes this, um, you know, if, if, you've, if you've ever read anything on the subject of uh, an afterlife existence, and, and there is a large amount of literature to, to suggest that that's a possibility, um, you know, he just, he, he is he's able to just put that idea right in there. Um, another thing I wanted to mention, which seems to suggest that he's so ahead of his time, Uh, he talks about animal telepathy. He talks about being able to, you know, command his cat to come over here or to, to leave a certain space or, or, or something. And that his cat would at a distance even respond, um, to his wishes. And, uh, it just reminded me of, um, Rupert Sheldrake's research with, uh, with, with animals predicting, you know, when their owner would come home. And, uh, and it predates sheldrake's research by decades, so it's mm-hmm. just an, another area that um that he pulls in that uh that is that just impresses me
1: well, I'll throw one more thing onto the table to add to our our speculation and our po- and our possible future experimentation um, so in the introduction, Colin Wilson kind of summarizes. A bit about the overall worldview that Lethbridge has kind of developed or that he did develop over the years throughout his books because like Colin Wilson says like um, he didn't just come up with a whole ideas a whole bunch of ideas in his first book and then just rehash them and and like expand on them in the other books that his his thought like changed and morphed and grew over time and developed over time um, so new ideas would come in new interpretations would would come in t- till he got you know to, to this final book but that one of the main like overarching points was that um, that events past events would impress something onto the objects themselves mm-hmm. so like um, uh, a stone or a bullet used in a war hundreds of years ago would still resonate with like the like the anger and like violence of that time now now today so we could basically and there's a I mean, there's a word for like psychics who do that kind of thing now. I can't remember what it is, but the, where they use objects to kind of sense things about like the owner or or um, kind of like a, a psychic, um, you know, canine unit. You know, tracking the scent essentially—it's like um, okay, this object—you know—the owner of this object is you know missing, and you know they—they they, they were murdered, and their bodies it should be here, right? You know, something like that for the kind of psychics that police might use. Again, another example of not necessarily believing, but uh, doing it because it because it works, whether you believe it or not. Um, so that objects can 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 like um, acquire the like impression of past events that gets carried on, and that. Um, Lethbridge kind of hypothesized that, or theorized, that this had something to do with, like, a field, like the electromagnetic field. Something about the field, like, um, of moving water, for instance, like certain, there's something about the the fields produced by certain phenomena, and he'd say not only moving water, but potentially also by, like, you know, desert landscapes or mountains, um, that, that receive the impression of emotions because like I said with the the example of the the ancient bullet or stone or any kind of like projectile that would contain or um, retain the the emotional um, like significance of that event in which it was involved and that the um, so that made me think along the lines of some of the stuff that Whitehead was writing about because for Whitehead um, like Lethbridge, like in a, in a different kind of field, like for, for Whitehead, the, everything comes down to vibration, like the, the, the basics of physicality, what we think of, of as physicality come down to a vibration, like, a va- the, like, the elect- like electromagnetism, like, like a photon of light. It's like there's wave-like properties to everything, and that is vibratory in nature. And he essentially equated, um, vibration with feeling with experience. So at the at the most basic level of reality, the the things that we see as vibrations are the objective appearance of the feeling of experience. So energy was like you could write a mathematical equation, energy equals feeling. So that um, um because for Whitehead every every objective thing, everything you could observe and see as an object had its own subjectivity to it. So, um, like from the inside, there's an inside and an outside to everything. Like when we're looking around the world, we're seeing the outsides of everything's, of everything. And then, but then from the perspective of that thing, there will be some, some iota at least of experience, like from the most basic vibratory, um, like phenomenon up to like a, you know, human consciousness and above. So those ideas just are kind of, they, they're reminding me of each other. That um, that there's something about the the nature of vibration um, equating to like experience to like the 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 most basic form of consciousness, and with the like the pendulum vibrations, and and potential light, like using that to, to divine something about higher realities, higher consciousness, um, but also that um, like if you think about the brain, like the the brain, you've got all this electrical activity going on, and but there's nothing there's nothing like intrinsic about a lot of different kinds of like brain cells that distinguishes one from the other. It's not like you have like a, a specific type of brain cell that that receives one type of signal and another specific type of brain cell that, re- that, that perceives another signal. It's like you've got, um, you know, a whole bunch of the same kind of neurons that will get signals from various different parts of your body, but that will seem, that seem to somehow, facilitate or produce different sensations or different thoughts like um like because if if there was something unique about every different if there was a if there had to be a unique a a unique correlation between each type of thought and the physicality of it you'd need like an infinite number of different types of brain cells in order to Mm -hmm. have you know the the range of thoughts that we have we use the same cells cells to have different thoughts So, like, there, there can't just be this one-to-one correlation. So, you've got like the same vibration that can be used for different forms or types of experience, right? So, when you have a, a projectile, an ancient projectile, it's got like the, it's got the same, it's just got its own makeup, right? It's got its own physical makeup that. That would be um, like analyzable by any scientist who knows how to do that that kind of thing. The 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 elements that make it up, the the minerals and whatever that have acquired over time, it's got its own physical stuff that makes it up. But if Lethbridge is right, and it can receive the impression of either like anger or potentially like love, if it was part of like a a, a bracelet or a, or a necklace or something that was like given and received and worn with affection or like then what is it uh, then you can't like it's not like the physical the actual physical makeup of that thing was 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 um like changed in in some way it's not like it was it's a difficult physical thing from it is from it's not like it's a different physical thing with anger than it is with love there's something the same about it it's the same object it's just that it's like uh that vibration has just acquired a different um symbol to it a different a different form of information that's being held in the same medium essentially the medium the medium seems to be able to hold a multitude of of different types of information even if it's just one medium that shares the same physical
2: properties well or, i just wanted to interrupt Alon really quick <coughs> no i just wanted to uh... i just wanted to add that uh, when he when you're talking about uh... objects Retaining like in a some sort of a energetic uh, sequence or in some sort of energetic signature over time. He talks about in the book. Lethbridge talks about. I'm not sure if it's in this book. I can't remember. But uh, of going to Stonehenge and of using the dowsing rod at Stonehenge and saying that it was you know that it was like it was spinning like just out of control and that he'd repeated this in in other kind of energetically you know hot spots and that there was something about it that had you know that w- led him to you know speculate that this knowledge was something that we had you know years or this that has been lost to mankind and when you think about it when you're talking about these these things and this ability to to read it if it's if it's true it does it does make you feel like you're in like plato's cave i think when you're when you're reading it you kind of, you feel like you're you're in the dark in in terms of seeing the all of this detail that's you know, like you said, this emotional signature in stones, and you know, it could be it could be in houses, as Lethbridge says, it's you know, it, it can result in ghosts. Uh, you know, there, there's a signature that can, you know, result in what he calls ghouls, where he would feel like like just this evil presence in, in an area and then find out that, you know, it was due to uh, something horrible that had happened in the past and that there's something in the area he thought, he speculated, had retained that. You know, water had retained that signature. And you, you really get the impression that you're, that, you know, for most of us, you know, if it if this was knowledge that, you know, our, humanity had millennia ago at this point we're we're just blind you know just blind stumbling around groping in the dark for things that um that were just that are just so many magnitude higher and more you know fundamental and important to people you know all of these different things
0: well i i well just to quickly get back to your point harrison about that stone retaining um either the anger or the love or whatever emotion or or uh or signature, or imprint, or mana that it um, might have received from the person using it. It might be, you know, I was just thinking, maybe there is a a, a physical change of vibration that is so subtle that it can only be measured by instrumentation or um, technology that, uh, that I am currently unaware of. So just offering that up as a possibility. Um, so another point that uh, i thought we'd get to or or get back to uh is how he how he intuits intelligent design without actually stating uh that the that the world is um that the world must have a creator um actually he does come out and say that so uh this is from a, a chapter called heredity and um what he says is The orders of nature known as the invertebrates seem even more convincing than any birds or mammals. Just look at a crab, for instance, when you're getting getting it ready for eating. Can anybody really believe that all those complicated armored joints reached their present shapes by each successive ancestral crab type adding something more efficient to the general family of crabs? Where did all those bristles on its legs come from? And how did it learn to extract calcium carbonate from the water to provide it with protection? As it grows bigger, it has to cast off that relatively impenetrable covering and hide naked under a rock until it can draw more calcium carbonate to it to form a new shell. Presumably, this elaborate process feels like death and a new birth to a crab. But how did it learn to do it? Actually, there are very early fossil crabs in the geological record and they are obviously crabs already. It would appear that there must have been blueprints for each type of crab, or how else could the cells of of which they are composed possibly have developed? If you give each cell the wisdom of Solomon, it could not have thought out what to do. Some other entity must have thought up the plans and drawn the blueprints. I mean, (laughs) that's intelligent design. Mm Circa 1970, 1971, um so there's something else that seems to be at work here. Um in terms of of Lethbridge as a kind of living example of um of tapping into uh this type of knowledge that that we're not brought up thinking about or accepting or, or considering. Uh and that is that, that it's all kind of related in a way. I mean um yes I, he, you wouldn't exactly say that he was a man of science, but he was a man of knowledge. He was, he was thinking on things as deeply as possible, uh, and had an intimate respect for nature and the environment. Um, but look at all the things that 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 connects to, uh, you know. So, so we just mentioned intelligent design. Uh, he's also, he also discusses at length um, the 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 messages he's received in dreams that have been borne out a few days later in letters that he's written uh, letters that he's received or things that have pe- that people have said to him. So he's observed himself as a, as a kind of receiver of, of, of telepathic information uh, for lack of a better description. Um, so I'm just, uh, you know, you said before Corey that he, you know it, it kind of reminds you of of how much you, in the dark uh, we all are in terms of our relationship to reality and and it's uh, it also kind of opens up the door in a way um, because if we were to engage some of this you know very low tech very easy to use technology and just just test it out as you propose we might do in the future, Harrison, you know what might we open our Ideas and, and minds to, um, in areas that we might not even um, anticipate.
2: Right space now. travel, space travel, high speed space travel. That's my first goal.
0: No, but you know what I mean. It's it's kind of like, it's, it's kind of like a, um, it's kind of like a, a, foray into using the mind in ways that we're not uh, traditionally used to using using it and And kind of exercising a faculty for perception and for uh, understanding that um at least in theory, I have yet to try all this
2: well, yeah, what he's saying is that there is a super consciousness that is so far above human consciousness that you there's no there are very, very few people who can tap into it, and that you can get there's barriers there's just natural barriers for whatever reason between. The Earth world and and super consciousness. Now, you, you can catch glimpses of it sometimes in very meaningful dreams. That there's a reason why sometimes dreams can take place, and you know you can get a, an idea of the future, future events in in a just an ordinary dream. You know something that, and I'm sure many of our listeners and us, we in particular have had dreams that were. Uh, they were prophetic in some way, even if it was mundane, but they were prophetic and you're just kind of struck by, well, you know, how did how the heck do I, I know the future in, in a dream? And so, you know, he's talking about this level of the super consciousness that exists outside of this very restricted cave-like world that we live in and that we can use instrumentation in order to get some kind of a, an idea of, it can deliver messages that basically it can deliver messages to us, just like Campbell was writing in, in first sight the book on side that there is a consciousness that 's far beyond our own, that exists outside of space and time, and that can then um, if you know certain people are more sensitive to it than others, but that we could we can tap into that information but it's, it seems like from what we 've read that you kind of have to have a you have to have some sort of an orientation towards it you know you have to have the right the proper attitude towards the, towards it towards life you have to be seeking you have to be open to the information you have to be you have have to have exhausted you know your your The limited capabilities that are there for you, because, like you pointed out, Harrison, you know, if you're just playing a game of, you know, find the ball under the cup, you know, your super consciousness isn't going to like, oh, here, let me give you the answer. You know, that's not according to this way of seeing it. That's not how it works. It's, it's much more like, you know, if you are in desperate need of the answer, then maybe I'll help. But you're just a, you know, the point of life is to struggle and to to seek answers on your own. And if we know that as humans... Then what more could you know? A super consciousness is is obviously vastly more aware. Is going to be is willing to allow you to fumble around in the dark until you actually do approach it with that you know the correct attitude, with the correct willingness to to open yourself up to answers that you know that could possibly you know that are sometimes mind blowing.
0: And and the benefit of stumbling around in the dark, uh, as all of us are, are are used to doing to some degree or another, I think. Uh, is that once you have found something, uh, once something makes um, a certain amount of sense on a on a deeper level, on an intrinsic level, uh, then what comes with that is a kind of conviction. Uh, it becomes you know you, it it becomes locked in, mm-hmm. um, and it becomes part of your your system, your um, your being. Um, in any case, folks. Uh, we certainly haven 't exhausted this <laughs> subject by any means it 's a rather large topic. Um, I think the idea of uh, of actually engaging this is uh, is a great idea uh, through experimentation um, i think if if anyone does try this at home, um, keep in mind that even if it doesn 't appear that you have a natural knack for it, uh, Lethbridge does say that uh, that these abilities can be developed to some degree or another. Uh, but certainly if you're listening to this show and if, if you've enjoyed uh, some of our shows in the past, uh, chances are um, you're pretty smart, you have great intuition, some psychic <laughs> abilities, uh, and have some link to the, uh, the superconscious. Um, I'm half kidding, of course. But uh, I, think, I think we'll, um, unless anyone else would like to add anything, I think we're gonna. And if you do
2: experiment, just send us the details. That'd be cool. I'd yeah, like to know or, that. Or
1: or take a video and put it on YouTube, and so we can watch.
0: Yeah, yeah. And on that note, thanks for listening, and uh, y'all have a great week, and uh, we'll see you again soon. And don't forget to hit like and smash and <laughs> and, <laughs> and subscribe. It's, it's, it's
1: <laughs> subscribe to Smash.
0: Subscribe to Smash. Thank yeah. you, everybody. Thank you.